Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, all those producers, those writers, those directors, those actors, the cinematographers, production designers, set dressers on occasion. Uh, we have spoken with some of them. Um, editors, film editors. Uh, sound mixers, sound editors, choreographers, composers, authors, you name it, we talk to them all. And we're going to be doing some talking today. Uh, and we're, I'm going to get to that in a minute. We've got some two great, great uh, live guests joining us today at the midpoint of the show. Uh, and we'll kick off the show short uh, momentarily with two wonderful documentarians. Uh, Deborah McClutchy and Anne uh, Al Al Alverke, uh, who have put together the documentary The Martha Mitchell Effect, which you can see on Netflix now. Uh, we're going to talk a little more about that in just a second. But I'm sure so many of you were paying attention to what was happening in San Diego this weekend with Comic-Con. The big news coming out of Comic-Con, uh, Marvel, of course. There was a lot of Disney Plus announcements. We saw um, the trailer drop for the new Disney Plus short series, I Am Groot. I'm in love. I am in love. I think I have watched that on a loop for a solid hour. Uh, I can't, And it's Baby Groot. And who doesn't love Baby Groot? So, I, I mean, Disney Plus just, they launched, you know, their Baymax short series which I'm very excited about now on August 10th. We're getting Baby Groot, I Am Groot. Uh, very, very fun, fun stuff. So for everybody out there, who the parents who were very upset that Disney Plus is now going to be showing Deadpool, Deadpool 2, and have that in the Disney Plus library, hey, number one, set up your child prevention. That's all you got to do. Set it up so the kids can't access it if you don't want them to see it. Uh, but number two, there are plenty of other options and more coming. And talk about more coming. Wow. What is coming from Marvel? We've got the lineup going out through phase six into, t into 2025. And uh, there is a heck of a lot of stuff that's going to be generated for the big screen, and for Disney+. Plus, We're going to get our season two of Loki. It's coming. Uh, some really interesting MCU films that will take us into, we're, we're getting ready to wrap up phase four next year uh, and then move into phase five and phase six. So really curious to see about that. Also, get ready, um, stockholders, they're going to be outlaying a lot of cash to make this stuff. <laughs> so, uh, that may impact um, stock prices at some point. Because all of these projects are not cheap. Uh, and it shows in the final product. The work is all exemplary. I'm really curious to see what happens. You know, Agatha... Agatha Harkness is getting her own Disney Plus. I think she's getting a series, either a series or a feature. Um, you know, we all met Agnes in, during WandaVision. So that's very exciting that we're going to get to see more of Katherine Hahn uh, as Agnes and find out what's going on with her. Will there be a, a face-off with Scarlet Witch again? Who knows? But right now... Stay tuned. We got Lightyear that is actually going to pop up on Disney Plus uh, next week. But for my money, 
we're getting I am Groot. We're getting a baby Groot short series on Disney Plus on August 10th. And next week, for those of you that wa- that watch the live stream of Behind the Lens on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page, um, if you're if you're watching today, you know I have Baymax back with us today, and a few other goodies out here. A new book I picked up from TCM on 52 more essential films. Werner Herzog has just written a new book. I'm very excited. I have my autographed copy from Werner. Um, but next week, I will be bringing Groot. Groot has been is prominently displayed in my bedroom uh, at home. So I will be bringing um, Baby Groot next week uh, as we ready for the launch of Baby Groot series the following day. But talking about what's launching, as I mentioned, the Martha Mitchell effect, it is on Netflix now. Uh, many of you, I remember Martha Mitchell. I remember how influential, how iconic she was uh, during the, the era, of, era of the Nixon administration, particularly her tie-ins to Watergate. Uh, she was an icon. She was a woman that I and so many of my peers admired and looked up to. She was outspoken. She was married to John Mitchell, uh, who was part of Nixon's cabinet. He also ran his uh, campaign. Um and things kind of went downhill for a little while for Martha. Uh, what Deborah and Ann have done is they have gone back in time. At one point, Martha was on major magazine covers. She was on every talk show there was. Daytime, nighttime. Um, she was a champion. And the press loved her. Because she would dish on Washington. Martha was notorious for picking up the extension. Yes, for the youngsters out there who don't remember what dial-up phones are, the kind that you can slam and you, it'll rattle your wall or your table, she could pick up, she had an art of picking up extensions and listening in on her husband John Mitchell's conversations with the president. And then as part of the Nixon tapes that are so famous, that uh, came out as part of the Watergate break-in and everything that happened after that. Um, there are many discussions in these tapes, and you hear them in this documentary, with John Mitchell, Martha's own husband, and Richard Nixon, the President of the United States, talking about how to shut up Martha. Because Martha would, if she heard it, she'd repeat it, and she'd tell the press. Um... She was at one point, I'd say, more famous than Jacqueline Onassis, who was extremely famous during that time period. Um, the Martha Mitchell effect is something that um, psychiatrists actually deemed this an actual condition, I believe, in 1988. Uh, and it stems from the fact that Nixon and Mitchell, Magruder, and a few other prominent names from the Nixon administration tried to discredit Martha, and every time she would say something about, you know, the Watergate break-in or, or other things that were happening within the administration, they would shut her down or they would release statements. The White House would release statements saying she's nuts, she's crazy, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Well, as everybody came to learn... Martha is the one that was telling the truth and did know exactly what she was talking about. And because of how she was downplayed, at one point she was actually held virtually as a hostage the weekend of the Watergate break-ins. Uh, she was here in California and essentially held almost as a hostage uh, to keep her away from the press and to keep her mouth shut because she had overheard the president and John Mitchell on the phone talking about the break-in um but what she was ultimately vindicated and now psychiatrists they call this the martha mitchell effect somebody that is dismissed as being a loon and being crazy uh who in fact yeah what they're saying is reality and they are later proved that yes they were the ones who were telling the truth and they were not crazy so that is a diagnosis of the martha mitchell effect and that is what 
Deborah and Ann really hone in on with the Martha Mitchell effect. Um, this is a great documentary portrait of Martha for a very specific time during that Watergate period, during the Nixon administration, and leading up to her death. She died just three weeks before I graduated high school. So I lived all of this, and I remember it all vividly as I was watching uh, the documentary. But there are no talking heads. There are voiceovers from people who were present. Uh, John Dean, Bob Woodward, Connie Chung, Sally Quinn. And it's very interesting the way it has been put together with archival footage from talk shows, still images from magazines, newspapers, uh, library archives, um, and then audio from the Nixon tapes that are then interspersed so that that gives a sense of almost a reenactment. But it's not. You're watching images of, of Nixon and Mitchell sitting in the White House talking, and you're hearing their voices on the tape. Was the tape that was the conversation they were having on the visual the same as what we're hearing? No, but it gives you a sense of what was happening at the time. Uh, it is, and we hear so much from Martha in her own words, thanks to all of the archival materials, especially the talk shows that are out there. I love this documentary, it's a quick 39 minutes. It is on Netflix right now. I can't encourage you enough to see it. Um, it really is a wonderful slice of history. It is in chronological order for you. Uh, Deborah and Ann did a great job with this. And, of course, you and uh, so without any further ado, I'm going to let you listen to my exclusive interview with Deborah McClutchy and Ann Alvergay talking the Martha Mitchell effect. Hello, it's Deborah. Hi, Deborah. It's Debbie. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm fine. I guess we're just waiting for Anne now. This is a really great little documentary. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. I would have yeah, loved to have seen more. Oh, I know, right? That's what people tell us. Um, but, yeah, 40 minutes is what we came up with, and I think it's a good length, actually, for the, for the story. You move this along so smartly. But there's so much more. I mean, I was around during the, these days, junior high and all the way up till I was a month before, I, three weeks before I graduated high school, Martha died. So, oh, my gosh. Wow. So you really did live during the period. I, yeah. She was on every talk show, every magazine cover. She was a sensation. Yeah. Yeah, uh, she really was. I heard Thomas says she was like yeah, a bombshell that hit uh, DC. I heard another beep. Is that Anne? It is. Hi. Hi, Anne. It's Debbie. How are you? Hi. I'm good. How are you? I'm so happy to be talking with both of you this morning or this afternoon. Thank you. Um, I was yeah, just. Thank you. I was just telling Deborah I love this doc. I mean, and I wish it had been longer. <laughs> I lived this period. She was such an icon and such a role model in this time period with women's rights, and they were appealing to high school and junior high girls, along with as Gloria Steinem was coming up. And so Martha was really a trendsetter. We were all fascinated, fascinated. And as I told Deborah, Martha died just three weeks before I graduated high school. So oh, wow. she was a constant presence in my news cycle. Mm. That's so interesting that you recall her fondly. I mean, that's good to hear. I am so curious for the two of you, what made you think of doing a documentary, not just on, Ma on Martha Mitchell, but specifically... You, you bring in the psychiatric diagnosis for what she really became in history, the Martha Mitchell effect. It's such an interesting tack to take and a way to approach this, but what made you think of Martha? <laughs> um, well, I mean, I can start this with Anne. Um, 
you know, I think both Deborah and I were pretty uh, devastated by the uh, 2016 election. And, uh, you know, we were searching for a female-driven story that could, you know, possibly shed light on the present. And when we heard about Martha, we started watching some news clips of her on YouTube, and uh, we realized there hadn't been a documentary about her. We couldn't quite understand how, because she was so savvy and so hilarious and, and, and such a popular figure mm-hmm. at the time. Um, and we knew that it, you know, it mirrored what was going on now. And certainly in terms of Me Too, you know, the impending impeachment at that time or later, um, uh, you know, the gaslighting. And then when we read that there was an actual sort of DSM diagnosis, that was coined after what she had experienced, we knew we had something, that this was extremely relevant, not just to Martha, but for women, you know, after and before Martha. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, and she is such a fascinating character and the whole marriage between she and John, because here she is, this Southern woman, brought up with traditional values, but she was also brought up to have a mouth. And having a mother from the South, I knew that very well. They are not known for being quiet. So the way you present, you show us so many different aspects of Martha, but you really do keep the focus on her, but all the different aspects of her. Where do you even start? Once you decided, we've got to tell this story about Martha, where do you even start? That's a good question. I'll jump in. It's Deborah. Um, We knew we wanted to start with Martha herself and really allow her to tell her own story. Um, And so that was our primary aim in the film. And so that's where we started in terms of looking for interviews done with her. Um, And when we found the Frost interview um, and an interview on the Tomorrow Show, those are really the frameworks for her being able to tell her own story from her point of view. Um, So that's where we started. And we knew that we, we weren't able to tell a full, you know, from cradle to grave kind of story, and that wasn't necessarily our interest. We really wanted to focus on, you know, these years in which she was involved with, you know, John Mitchell and the Nixon administration. Um, so that allowed us to really focus. And then really it was what the archive revealed to us is what we were allowed to focus on at the same time. Um, and luckily we did find quite a bit of material. We were surprised. Um, and how much we were able to find of her in terms of television and video um, and TV news interviews with her, which, you know, make up the bulk of the film. And she's so telegenic, and it's so great to see her on screen. Um, So the more we had Martha on screen, um, the, you know, the more riveting the film would be. She is larger than life. And even looking at these segments and these excerpts all these years later, she is still larger than life when you watch her. And I, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I, I mean, love that. Us to her in many ways. She is really larger than life. And, um, you know, this kind of, uh, like, celebrity figure in her own right. Um, and just very charismatic and telegenic. And her blonde, bouffant hairstyle and those dimples. And she's just fun to watch. It's always the bouffant hairstyle and the hairspray. That gets you every time. That's what gets you. So you you have your basic framework of these two major interviews to start with. But then you've really you really hone in on stuff and you create this wonderful the 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 political thread in here is fabulous where you have footage of Nixon in the White House. I love that that so much of this is like shot through windows very voyeuristically, which is exactly what Martha essentially was, listening in on conversations, picking up phone extensions. That was a real art to be able to pick up an extension phone so nobody knew you were picking it up. But we get this great clandestine kind of, almost her own espionage that happening here that we really see through some of the, the video of Nixon in the White House Uh, as well as other Nixon footage, but then you bring in the tapes. Talk to me about the tapes, because to find that those damning conversations in there 
that must have been just joy beyond joy for you guys. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, it was actually pretty early on in our research when we were um, cutting together a, you know, sort of a, a trailer, so to speak, a, you know, fundraising pitch trailer mm-hmm. um, that we, you know, delved into the White House tapes and realized that, you know, in the really the week after the Watergate break-in, there was a lot of discussion about Martha, particularly, you know, Nixon talked about her a lot, yeah. which was also a revelation, you know, for Abbott's his administration and then administrations, I should say, both of them. Um, but definitely um, the sort of, the, the really big conversations he was having with Haldeman the week after the break-in were, were incredibly revelatory and really did provide evidence that there was this sort of campaign to gaslight her and to use her, not only to gaslight her, to discredit her in the press, so people wouldn't believe what she was saying, but that they were actually using her um, as a cover-up to yeah. get John Mitchell out so they could distance John Mitchell from the scandal because they knew that he had to be culpable to a certain extent, although Nixon didn't really know because he never really asked him, theoretically. This is what, at least what we hear in the tape. So once we heard the tape, we realized we could sort of pit Martha and Nixon, you know, in the film, almost, you know, each telling their own kind of, the story in a way and, and using, you know, Nixon as a foil, right, to, mm-hmm. to Martha, but also that there was this love triangle that was going on, that they, that both Nixon and Martha were really vying for the, the love and the betrayal, uh, sorry, the loyalty of, um, of John Mitchell. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately John Mitchell sided with Nixon and betrayed his own wife, Martha, in the end. And look what it got him. that's the great irony there of this triangle look where it got him now what you do is so interesting with the editing process here and and because you you know you have a lengthy history in editing so you are very adept and skilled and i see that at play here where you have the audio and you find imagery that really could be very representative of the actual meeting in the White House or actual phone calls. How difficult was that to find footage or still images is much easier, but you've actually got some other footage and you really match it up so well. That had to be one of the biggest challenges here. Yeah, you know, actually, it, it wasn't the biggest challenge. <laughs> um, only because, only because, you know, we when we went to the Nixon administration, I'm sorry, the Nixon Library, we knew that there was a collection of uh, Haldeman and Ehrlichman Super Eight, essentially mm-hmm. a treasure trove of kind of you know inside the White House home movies that his cabinet members shot and is essentially public domain. So we knew there was this kind of verite observational footage of of Nixon in the White House. So so we actually I mean, you know, some of it we you know we had to fair use because some of it wasn't public domain, but for the most part we did sort of have our our, our Pick of kind of what we had. I mean, I would say we used all of what was good. So, <laughs> what, you know, we, we we mined it as much as we could. But um, but you know, I mean, in some ways, the challenge was more to depict Martha because she really, as, as Deborah said, was only visualized in you know pretty staid uh, television interviews. There was very little verite of her. But because she was so captivating, even in a sit-down interview. Um, I think it it does work in the end. I think it works beautifully, uh, especially you've got some footage there of, you know, we see like a semi-side right profile from behind of Nixon, and he's talking, and you've got the audio going. And, yes, you could really visualize that could have been the conversation that, that we are hearing. So I love how you, how you navigated that and you married that together. It really works well in all of those segments. Now, you, all, you, also, you also have some very important voiceovers here with people like Bob Woodward and Connie Chung and Sally Quinn, as well as, interestingly, uh, Piper Dankworth, who really was a friend of Martha Mitchell's. Yeah, 
and of course John Dean. Are these current interviews you got specifically for the documentary? Talk to me about what was that process like and how you narrowed that down as to who you would want to give some insight and commentary. Yeah, um, I'll jump in. It's Deborah. Um, those were original interviews. They're credited in the film as right. original interviews in the end credits. And we really wanted to talk to people who were primary subjects, who had known Martha, who had interfaced with Martha, who had interviewed her, who, you know, was a family friend. Um, so we knew that we wanted to stick with people who really knew Martha. We didn't want to go the historian route necessarily. Um, and so it was really... You know, Anne and I worked in documentaries for a long time or in film for a long time, so we had certain contacts we could reach out to to say, hey, do you think you could get us to John Dean or perhaps Connie Chung or um, with Piper Dankworth? It was really just like digging and digging on the internet to try and find a contact to her, which we eventually somehow did. I can't even really remember how we did, but we did. Um, so that was the goal from the from the start. That was to talk to people who knew Martha specifically or had some sort of you know interaction with her personally um, to help them or for those interviews to help frame her story and help give us context to um, her story and to you know the era that we were working within in terms of telling her story. Mm-hmm. What was your collaboration, the two of you? How did the two of you approach this in terms of navigating and putting this whole thing together? Did, you know, Deborah, did you take the, the primary reins and did you take editing reins? What was your collaboration like to bring the Martha Mitchell effect together? I mean, I, w- I would say that, you know, because I, I work as an editor and because it was, you know, we were trying to do an all archival film, you know, which we did. Um, that I sort of kind of took the reins in terms of just sort of piecing it all together. So, you know, we had a, we started out with like a three-hour rough cut just because we just wanted to see how much of the ar- archival will play and how much we need to tell the story. Um, and um, and then Deborah took over the producing and the archival, predominantly the archival research task. Mm-hmm. How long was the research? On this one yet? <laughs> it was years. Oh, it was a long time. Um, I guess, long time. Yeah. It was a long time. Yeah, we started in 2019, and um, I took a trip out to the Nixon Library and did like a first pass of research to see what I could find. Um, prior to that, both Anne and I had been digging and digging on the internet, um, looking for material and looking for Marco's story and those who could contribute to it. Um, and then Anne took a trip to the Nixon Library and gathered more material. Um, and, you know, we were hoping to go back out there even, you know, perhaps a couple more times. But again, the, the pandemic closed everything down, so we didn't have access to it ourselves. But we worked with an amazing archivist at the Nixon Library, um, who most filmmakers will know, Ryan Pettigrew. And he really, um, he really helped us out tremendously in terms of getting us materials. Um, and helping with the research process. Because uh, we did get a ton of stuff through the Nixon Library, as well as the Library of Congress. We took an early trip there um, before the pandemic and got a really great radio interview that hadn't been heard in decades of Martha. Um, and yeah, a lot of it actually like took place in our individual homes with us sitting on the computer, <laughs> digging through uh, internet records and, and that type of thing, too. So it was an intense process for, for both Anne and I to do the research. Isn't it a fun process? It may be intense, but isn't it fun? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. totally. It was yeah. fun. I mean, when you find things, like... Oh, go ahead. Oh, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, you know, even though there were certainly challenges to doing this in the pandemic... Um, in some ways, it was kind of the perfect pandemic project because we could really, you know, we did all of our contemporary interviews over Zoom. Um, we were able to, you know, pretty much communicate through the internet and through telephone calls, as Deborah said, you know, in our respective homes. So, what did the two of you find to be the most surprising thing that you found in your research? That's a good question. I don't know how to answer that because there are so many things that surprised us. Um, 
I guess one thing for me, I was surprised at, uh, there was, uh, Martha actually interviewed Gloria Steinem on a talk show, which we were hoping to find the footage of that, but it didn't exist any longer. Um, but that type of thing just surprised me, like, what, she interviewed Gloria Steinem on a talk show? This is crazy. I hope we can find this. So it was things like that that I found surprising. Um, many more things I'm sure that I can't think of at the moment, Anne. <laughs> I mean, I would say, and I sort of already mentioned this, it was really, you know, digging into the White House tapes and, and realizing how integral sort of Martha Mitchell was in the conversation <laughs> in the White House. I mean, really, like, you know, it was, it was it's so interesting because, you know, John Mitchell and, and Nixon, because they were so close, you know, they, they all socialized with Martha. And um, so they knew a lot about her. And I think, you know, I think, they, I think Nixon was in awe of her. I think he was jealous of all her popularity. You know, sometimes she would surpass him in in the press. Um, you know, and then he was scared of her. You know, he, he didn't really know what to make of her. She was a very different um, species of, yeah. of females that he was not used to. So uh, to put it bluntly, kind of strange. But anyway, but the, the bottom line is, I think he just didn't understand her, and so as a result, was scared of her and and spoke about her constantly. Um, and so I think so like that was the most revelatory. I it's it's one thing you might hear cabinet members and the president casually mention, hey, you know, are you and your wife coming to so-and-so? I expect you at this event or something, if you're recording every bit of minutiae that's happening in the Oval Office. But it's something else to have the Attorney General, cabinet member's wife, actually be the topic of conversation between the president and his aides and other people in the inner sanctum. That I, just blows my mind blows my mind yeah i mean it shows you the power a soft, a soft power right yeah i've seen it now with jenny jenny thomas like i mean i you know i don't but like i really it, it makes you wonder how much people know and and obviously you know there's a lot to be said for pillow talk right i mean martha knew a lot yeah and, you know there was even a lot that she she couldn't even testify to knowing. I mean, she she was never called before the Senate Watergate hearing committee, um, but she was uh, called to give a de deposition in um, a civil DNC suit against mm -hmm. Creep, and and she did speak, but she wasn't able to talk about what she knew from what she knew from her husband. Right. And there was a lot that she knew. Wouldn't it be lovely to have, to have Martha Mitchell here today in a situation like the January 6th hearings? I can Absolutely. I can just imagine. Oh, my God. So now, ladies, out of the three hours you started with, personally, I'd like to see all three hours. How difficult was it to kill your darlings with this one? Uh, yeah, you know... <laughs> I mean, I would say, you know, I think we went from three hours down to maybe like a 90-minute cut. And that's, and then I think at that point, it started to get more challenging. I mean, I think we realized at some point pretty early on we weren't going to be telling the whole Watergate story. And that was in some ways, uh, you know, uh, a liberation, right? That we didn't have to, we weren't beholden to that. Nor, as Deborah said, we were beholden to tell, you know, Martha's story before she was in D.C., um, so, yeah, I mean, there was definitely things that were lost, but in some ways it was nice to know that we had a 40-minute framework um, and that we had to stay within that and we were we basically went up right to the limit of that. Mm -hmm. So now what's next for the two of you? Will you be collaborating on another project? Do you have something in mind? Um, don't have anything in mind at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think we're enjoying our summer and enjoying the fruits and the labor with the Martha Mitchell effect and just hoping that people will watch it. So, but yeah, I hope that we can collaborate again on something great. That would be amazing. And what about for you, Anne? Yeah. Yeah, I think we're just taking the time off and, and, and doing lovely interviews with people like yourself. Hey, if Netflix ever gives you the green light or you end up with a DVD or a Blu-ray... Of this, I would love to see more of your of your removed footage included as bonus features, because I think it's got to be equally as fascinating as what you give us now. Oh yeah, that would be amazing. 
Oh, ladies, thank you. Thank you so much. This is so fun talking to both of you. And I personally, I can't wait to see what the two of you collaborate on next. I want to see it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys, and hopefully we'll talk again in the future. That would be great. Thank, thank you, you. Bye. And that was Deborah McClutchy and Ann Alvergu talking about their documentary, The Martha Mitchell Effect, again. It is fascinating. It's a quick four, 39 minutes. It's on Netflix. See it, see it, see it. It is a piece of history, folks. Um, and it still amazes me that I, that this was happening in my lifetime, and I vividly remembered everything. And Martha Mitchell was such a huge icon for me uh, in junior high and high school. So um, I think you'll enjoy it. So... There you go. But now we're going to switch gears. Uh, and we're going to be talking about a new mockumentary that is out there on the horizon called The Daphne Project. And I am so thrilled to have with us live, we've got Zora Amon Cruz and Alec Tibaldi with us. Are you guys there? Yes, yes, yes we're here. There you are. The Daphne Project. <laughs> Wow. Yes. Yeah, Daphne is quite a character, Zora. <laughs> that she is. Um, yes. Yeah. I wanted to we're, just... We're so happy that people are <laughs> enjoying their adventure with her. You know, Z Daphne is the kind of character I just wanted to reach into the screen and slap her. <laughs> <laughs> You know, those kind of <laughs> those kind of characters are fun. They're fun. And yes, you yes. know you never know what Daphne is going to do next and how the spin is going to be for her while she's making the spin in her mind be thinking it's for everybody mm -hmm. else. It's really interesting what the two of you have come up here. It's very inside theater baseball. Uh, mm -hmm. which I love. Every actor out there is going to be able to relate to the Daphne Project. <laughs> yeah, some, yeah. Some may not want to admit that they can relate to it, uh, but we know that right. they, we know they're out there. Uh, you know, <laughs> you guys, your co-writers, your co-directors, you know, Zora, you star as Daphne. Alec, you're also in the film. Where did this idea start? Was this theatrical frustration? Was this you saw people like Daphne and it's like, ooh, we got to tell this. We got to do this. Um, tell me, how did this? How did this come to be? It's so it's so interesting because Daphne was born as a as a improv character. Mm -hmm. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, she was born as an improv character, and um, kind of at her core, she's always been uh, an artist. So, um, and specifically an actress, and it, and it felt like it felt right to kind of comment on the world that she's in, muddling through day in, mm -hmm. day out, and kind of get an inside look at that. Yeah, I think that Daphne Wilco is just a really compelling character that we both kind of fell in love with. And even though she's prickly and complicated, we um, we kind of love her in her own crazy way. And we've been uh, she's been in our lives now for many years. We <laughs> developed her when we were high school students. Uh, I think it was 12 years ago now. So wow. she's been with us a long time. And um, we just find her to be really compelling and complicated and the type of protagonist that uh, doesn't always do the right thing, but she does something that will always keep you on your toes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, she definitely, <laughs> definitely does that, Alec. Oh my God. Um, you never, <laughs> you never know what's coming out of Daphne's mouth or mind next, um, mm -hmm. th which makes it, you know, it keeps your interest, but it also, it's a really interesting look at how Daphne's actions and mindset affects all of those around her 
the seeming, right, yeah. you know, those un- unsung, unknown other people on stage with Daphne. <laughs> you don't often think about that. You know, look at any Broadway play. You you hear about, you know, the leading man, the leading lady. But what mm-hmm. about everybody else who's in the chorus or when somebody does one thing and it can throw off the entire the entire you know performance like a rockette who decides right, i'm yeah. going to i'm going to kick to the left and not the right um there goes the whole <laughs> line falling down on the floor uh right and this is one of the this, this is what's so fun about daphne it's so funny cuz i i feel like theater and art become such small worlds like mm-hmm. they seem really huge and then the more that you kind of get involved in it, everyone does know everyone. And I think, I think when someone's reputation isn't great, that travels so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do feel like in the real world, like people are definitely talking about Daphne, like there are emails being sent. And <laughs> <laughs> like her reputation precedes her for sure. So, you know, Alec now, now, you know, makes or cover her ears and tell us the truth, you know, <gasps> <laughs> How much of Zora is in Daphne? How much like Daphne is she? Well, I'm happy to say that Zora is nothing like Daphne. Thank God. <laughs> um, I think if I think if she was like Daphne, I would not have agreed to co-direct a film with her. Um, Zora is good, good. truly the most humble, uh, giving, generous collaborator you could ask for. Um, and, um, I don't understand to this day where Daphne comes from. Um, <laughs> Zora always says that she is a, uh, she is a, she is a Gemini. So there's po- probably, uh, Uh-oh. somewhere in there, but that side has never come out except on the screen. So, um, no, she's, uh, can, she's nothing like her character and it truly is an acting, uh, piece. Well, thank God because well, you know well, thank I you. I could just imagine <laughs> if she if Zora if you were anything like Daphne you probably would have been pushing him away from the computer keyboard when he was trying to write. Um, yeah. So I'm so happy to hear that was not the case with you guys. But now for yeah. a, for a character you developed 12 years ago, uh, you know mm-hmm. how many iterations and incarnations. Have you gone through in developing Daphne to get to the point where you both said, you put on your Mickey and Judy hats and said, we're going to put on a show and we're going to make a film? Right. Because um, there is some early footage that, that lives on Facebook. <laughs> um, All right, now I have to go find it. That, okay. <laughs> even that version was kind of like her a reality show that hadn't really been picked up by anyone. Um, But I feel like since that time, you know, Alec and I have maintained a friendship since high school. and We would always kind of be thinking, you know, what would Daphne be doing now? And what would she be working on? And what kind of spaces would she be infiltrating? (laughs) And um, Alec always tells a story. He'd seen me in a production of the Bacchae, actually. And, um it was the most eccentric thing. And I I think we had both kind of come to the conclusion, like, okay, this is exactly what Daphne would be doing in present day. Um, She would be one of many personalities, like trying to bring a very eccentric show to life. Mm -hmm. Now, did you play in the production that you did? Zora, did you play Dionysus? I did not. I am um... <laughs> now. Now, now I'm heartbroken. Ah, <laughs> oh, come on! I was, I was one of the. I know. I was one of the boss guys. So I was one of like maybe twenty women, and um, sort of all of the the writhing on the floor and moaning and panting and just like <laughs> being um, <laughs> intoxicated. It was very much part of. <laughs> my work and what I did as as a bucket woman, um, but yeah, no, I was not Dionysus. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, you know, it's nice that that you got elevated this time. You know, yeah, yeah, it's nice. I so, got to I got to live out my Dionysus track 
There you go. Now you're done. Now you can move you can move on to something else. But now once the yeah. two of you decided, okay, this is where Daphne would be at this point. Let's make this a film. What was your collaborative process like? Um, because you were in every frame of the film, Zora. So how did you guys go about with the writing process, fine-tuning it into a mm-hmm. script where you're bringing in other people, and then ultimately deciding who was going to be, you know, that Alec was really the one who was gonna, might be the one directing because you had to focus on being the center of attention on camera as Daphne. <laughs> Yeah, I think, so, although this is a film, when we started filming it, we weren't exactly sure what it was. <laughs> we knew that we had something that we really liked, but um, we filmed the first 20 pages, uh, and we kind of thought this would be like a first episode or a first part of a larger piece, um, and then we edited all that footage together and then thought, okay, this could be the beginning of a feature uh, film, and I think the process was really malleable and really kind of like a trying something out. Um, and in terms of the writing process, you know, Zora and I live on opposite coasts and um, we were sort of doing the Zoom writing thing before mm-hmm. everybody else was. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, we, we wrote a lot on the phone. We, we would sit down and write and then I'd look down at my phone and it would be like, this call has been on for, you know, three hours and 37 minutes. So, you know, it was, <laughs> long sessions of just uh, structure and throwing around our ideas. Um, I think, and yeah, I, oh, sorry. I was going to say, I think what was special is that we started off together. Like we would, we have a few summers together um, to kind of get an initial draft. And then all of that editing happened long distance. And I'm fairly grateful for the time that we had face to face because I feel like that's when the magic of bouncing ideas off and kind of being like, is this too much? And being like, well, let's find out. Let's put it on the page and see if it's too much. Well, I've got to ask you. Yeah, what... and I think. No, go go ahead, oh, Alan. Sorry, no, I, 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 I was just going to say sort of our onset uh, way of working. You know, uh, I had just made my first film and um, this was sort of Zora's first time. So I think what was great about it was, um, you know, we didn't have a lot. We didn't even have like a monitor for Zora to watch playback. So it was a lot of um, Zora had to really trust me and I really had to trust her that, um, you know, that on set we didn't have too much time to really be like going back and seeing things. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, as this is a mockumentary, this movie was really made in the editing room and that's where (laughs) the collaboration could really... Uh, it really changed because, as you said, Zora was on screen. We were moving very, very fast. Um, so it was a very sort of run-and-gun six-day shoot um, where, you know, there wasn't too much time to stop and argue, which was really nice. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, when you're shooting, yeah, you, don't, yeah. you don't have the benefit of the mute button that Zoom has. You know, during, <laughs> during three hours and 37 minutes, I wonder how many times each one of you or one of the other was hitting that mute button for a minute. Um, but when you're there in person filming, there is no mute button, guys. Sorry. Uh, I, just, I just have so many memories of um, receiving cuts and taking the time to sit and watch and, like, having notes and being like, hey, I'm going to call you with my notes and this, this will be another two-hour phone call. <laughs> Well, I've got to ask you because this was six day shoot. You are it is run and gun. You described that perfectly, Alec. You're in one location. You have minimal mm-hmm. cast, obviously minimal crew as well. Since we are talking, you know my favorite films: low budget, no budget, micro budget. Um, yeah. You know how did the compactness of this production work for you? And really help both mm. of you elevate your own games, because Alec, you had you had already directed something. Zora, you were a newbie here, essentially, uh, with that production end. So I'm curious about the benefits or the hardship that this small production, minimal people, one location. What did that do? How did that enhance or challenge each of you? 
Yeah, I mean, for me, the the main thing was we didn't have to ask uh, for permission. We just got to make this, and we kept our overhead really, really low. We kept it really, really small. And within those, you know, we were confined in a lot of ways, but we got to make exactly the film that we set out to do. Mm-hmm. We didn't have anyone bank bank rolling us who was going to send us notes and tell us to make Daphne more likable or to make the footage less grainy or less documentary style. It was, we were the only people that we had to answer to was one another. And for me, that was incredibly freeing and, yeah. um, you know, of course it was very, very challenging because we didn't, if there was a problem, Zora and I were the ones that had to fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <Right>. but, <laughs> and we kind of had to do a lot of different paths. You know, Zora would be putting on her makeup and looking at a call sheet and looking at a shot list. I would be carrying the food. And, you know, so you, you end up doing everything. But then in the end, uh, the movie is 100% yours, or in our case, mm-hmm. half and half. But the movie really belongs to us. And right, uh, yeah. all of the concessions that we made were... Uh, based on each other and not based on, well, the person that's paying for it, they've written us a check, so now we have to make the movie that they want us to make. Um, mm-hmm. It was really ours, and that was really empowering as artists. Okay, now, yeah. now you've just told me that I've, been, guess... I've been doing something wrong all along because I've written checks for films, and uh, my ideas never get incorporated, so obviously I'm doing something wrong. Um, but that had that. Ha- like, Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, that has to feel good for you guys to know this is yours. You know, you know, you're the ones that picked out the, the folding chairs. You're the ones that decided how many to set up. You're the ones that, in writing the script, you have a line in there about, you know. Charging one hundred and seventy-one dollars a ticket for somebody to sit on a folding chair, which I cracked up, guys. That was one of the funniest lines in the whole movie. One hundred and seventy-one dollars to sit on a folding chair, um, but that has to feel good, even when you had to make concessions through the process, to know that the this is your collective voice and nobody else's with the decisions that were made. And I think that's what's made the response feel so special as well is that, you know, we did get to make exactly what we wanted to make and, and people are responding to it and seeing themselves and seeing other people that they know and um, getting to relive their theater trauma <laughs> for what it's worth. <laughs> now, did you say theater drama or trauma, Zora? Well, <laughs> One and the same in some cases. One the same. <laughs> Theater trauma. Yes. You know, and I have to say, a lot of what you came up with uh, in terms of these characters that you have, and I want to get into the ca- your casting, because, uh, you know, you've got some, some... There is talent. I see talent in your supporting cast, but the characters that you mm-hmm. developed, uh, you know, to have a star who his big claim to fame is he's Diane Keaton's nephew, uh, that he, he <laughs> said how many times, what, three times, four times in the course of, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is just so funny. But we all know people that have done that. That's just it. We all know people mm-hmm. that have done that. But, you know, you come up with these characters and you've got some great traits imbued within each of them. How much of that was on mm. the page? How much of that, came to life once you cast each of the roles? Because I, I think certain behavioral things were on the page and very specific, and I think that also helped the actors that we saw kind of bring their own flavor to it since they had a base of, like, this person's really anxious or nervous all the time, but, like, trying to keep it together or, you know the opposite of this person's really confident and sure of themselves and don't you dare correct them. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like by kind of writing all of those quirks into it, it, A, you know, didn't make Daphne the least or or the most awkward person. They were all kind of difficult people. Um, But it was great in the audition process to see people kind of play around with what was on the page, what we had given them. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say, one of your real standouts is Reed Lancaster 
as Phineas, your your director. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I he brought so much to that role. Uh, especially with the crying and the heartbreak and oh my production is never gonna go on. Um and it you just have to laugh as you're watching this. But I really yeah, love like him. Example, I was gonna say like um during the audition, like he made the choice to to do the accent. Like we had just written this really pompous guy who had come from fresh from Yale and was just kind of like I'm God's gift to theater. And um, I don't know. It, it's just like one of those things where someone makes a choice in the audition room and you're like, hmm, that stands out. We're going to remember this. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I mean, and I love the British accent that Reed threw in there. <laughs> I love it. That was all, that was all his idea. That was not written. Yeah. Uh, and that was just a great thing that he did. And then immediately we were like, of course Phineas is British. You know, Alec, <laughs> how exciting is it for you, Alec, as as a director, when you have an actor that suddenly sees something and brings something to the table that you hadn't envisioned as the writer-director? That has to be it's exciting truly for you. the best part about making films because uh, you write a character and then the character is yours for oftentimes many, many months, many, many years, and then you sort of pass the reins off to another person. And you see the character grow from an idea on a piece of paper to a real actualized person. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's so exciting. And, and it's just the best part for me, my favorite part. Mm-hmm. And we, we should shout out our casting director, Gail Quinto. Because um, she, I just feel like immediately got the project and, you know, was just like super serious about bringing in people that were funny and flexible and willing to play and um, just have fun with us, and it was really great. Well, that's like you've got Ed Norwood, who's a standout as Laramie, since Daphne had to oh have my, an assistant. Everyone loves Laramie. <laughs> Daphne had to have an assistant. I mean, wearing the sunglasses and spritzing Daphne's face and then his own was just great. That, that was great. <laughs> and then you've got Piper De Palma, who was deadpanning. Um, and was just fabulous. She reminded me very yes. much of an Aubrey Plaza uh, mm-hmm. with her deadpan. You know, a, a really <laughs> fun, fun part, not to take away from Daphne, but a fun, fun part of this film are your needle drop, your music selections. It's got the whole Woody Allen vibe, which ties in with, you know, the one character in the play who is hung up on Annie Hall. And we've got the whole idea of, of you know, we have an actor who is, you know, Diane Keaton's nephew and Diane Keaton, Woody Hall, uh, Woody Allen. So yeah. you've got all this going and you bring in very Woody Hall, you know, feeling music. What led you to the needle drops that you have? Because I think they're all great. Yeah, we really wanted to find music that was going to be kind of uh, playful, fun, quintessential uh, NYC stuff. And Woody Allen is obviously synonymous with New York City. Mm-hmm. And I think if you put jazz music over any shot of New York City, people are going to think that it's a Woody Allen yeah. movie. And, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, I I think, um, yeah, I mean, for, for me, I've, I grew up on his movies and uh, you know, uh, you, you can't help but be influenced by someone who's so been so seminal to comedy. Um, and yeah, I think the music was just about finding stuff that would really complement what we were doing. And the music breaks sort of exist to really uh, have the audience take a break from being in a very claustrophobic, awkward, uh, awkward silence type of, in, of in environment. So I think when we would leave that, all of the interstitial moments were there to sort of let the audience catch their breath and then go right back into another sort of silent, awkward, zooming in and out camera, cringy moment. Uh, mm-hmm. So the breaks in the action were really important. Well, and what I also love you do with the music, um, during those interstitial breaks and you, you throw up, um, you know, your chirons with various quotes from Euripides and from this particular play. And it's really interesting to see the quotes that you are showing. Um, mm-hmm. 
and in conjunction with the music that we're hearing. Uh, that, I found, was a really interesting meld that you have there. It was, a, it was important to us to um, embed the, the text of the, the play, especially so that the rehearsal scenes would look real. <laughs> um, and then we're so grateful to our editor, too, for bringing the quotes in in a visual way, too, to sort of, like, land that so that, you know... Dionysus's journey feels very similar to Daphne's, you know, of trying to prove people wrong and kind of like prove herself to other people that don't believe in her. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just cool how that that worked out. Well, and and you brought up the, the, a key word there, Zora, your editor. Mm-hmm. Guys, talk mm-hmm. to me about the editing and putting this together. This is this moves so quickly. Uh, the pacing is impeccably done. Um, and you don't realize, by the time the film is over, you don't realize that it's over. You're waiting to see mm. more, to see what what else is Daphne going to do now. Uh, Daphne <laughs> would actually be a great television series character. Um, but what? how challenging was the editing process here? And working with your editors? Yeah. We, we had a fantastic editing team and, um, you know, I think we all felt like we wanted something short and something that you would feel like you want more. Um, and yeah, it was definitely tricky because there was a lot of improv and, uh, you know, it's hard to match things. It looked like we, we sort of set it up to look like there were multiple cameras, but there was only one. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so it was hard to match takes and we had a really patient editing team. Um, and I think, and I think, a, I think a movie you guys, like this, uh... I just remember all the, the storyboarding that was happening. I feel like that was kind of part of the magic of <laughs> making it all make sense. Well, I I have to tell you. Yeah, yeah. The... No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I was just saying all of those, you know, when you're editing a film like this, you're really focused on rhythm, comedy beats, um, and making sure that everything's landing. And like with any film, there's so many funny moments that ended up on the cutting room floor that we love, but just... Uh, would have weighed us down a little bit too much. Um, so, yeah, the editing process was super fun. Well, you definitely hit the comedy beats, and something that that you do in the film that is so important, it's not just the comedy beats, but it's holding those cringeworthy moments, the silences mm. after Daphne says something or does something, <laughs> and everybody has a blank look on their face. Um you hold those, <laughs> and that's so important because as Zora is now chuckling, that's exactly what you do in that silence to break mm-hmm. the tension as you're watching it. So, I mean, that's really a lot. Of, I can see the thought and the challenge that went into bringing that to life. So, I mean, so well done with that. So well done, guys. Thank you. Thank you. You know, since we're almost out of time here, of course the show's running over. I always run over. Uh, but I've got to ask you, the film just had its premiere, theatrical premiere on Friday. Mm-hmm. Do we know how, yes. it, how it was received? And, will, and it was in New York. So who else is going to get to see the Daphne Project and when? Um, we'll be at the quad until the 28th. Um, and it, it feels really special to screen at the quad because I, I, I just feel like we always call this movie our love letter to New York. And Aww. it just feels special to, to have shot it here and be able to theatrically release it here. And, yeah, we I had a fantastic opening weekend. I feel like, you know, all of our various communities came out to support it and they all had fun, which felt really great. <laughs> Um, it's been, it's been a very special time and we're excited. So, yeah. And, uh, for those of you that don't have a chance to catch it at the quad, we will be premiering on Fuse Plus, which is a new streaming platform. Um, and that will be later this year. Wow. Well, I can't wait for everybody to get a chance to see this and for everybody in New York, go to the quad and see it. I can't believe it's not in a theater here in L.A. at a Lemley or something. I'm very distressed about that. I want you to know, Mm. um, you know, we need it here. We need it in theaters. Films need to open in theaters. Yeah. But. Absolutely. (laughs) 
Guys, I can't thank you enough for being on the show today. This has been so fun. This is such a fun film. Um, Daphne is a character you love to hate. You want to see more <laughs> of her. You want to see more of this whole crazy cast of characters that we see uh, putting this, this theatrical production together. Um, it is hilarious writhing on the floor in a couple scenes. Um, a lot of, of hilarious noises. I don't even know how you come up with some of those noises, Zora, but okay, you got some noises. Uh, you know, are you? what do you guys have in the works now? Now that the Daphne Project is emerging into the world, are you working on anything new together, separate? Both, yeah. Um, we're continuing yeah. to write together and hopefully expanding Daphne and her world. And then okay. uh, we're, we're both writers who write together and also on our own. So, uh, yeah, just multiple projects and hoping to keep Daphne going and uh, at the same time writing our own scripts and prose and, yeah. Well, yeah. As I said, I w Daphne, I think, would make a great series. She'd be a great character for a series. Uh, you know, we've we hope people agree with you you know it's, <laughs> we would love that it's been a long it's been a long time since we saw marlo thomas as a struggling actress in that girl um yeah. but she was nice and sweet we haven't really seen a character like that of a struggling actress trying to make it um mm -hmm. especially not one like daphne with her own mindset um, right, right. Not the cutesy kind of Marlo Thomas, that girl of Anne Marie, but a really, mm. it's all about me character. Right. Um, yeah. It's just so kind of not really seeking permission. Just yeah. Going for it. The time is right. The time. I, I'm serious. I think the time is right uh, to see a series with Daphne as as a character. I think it would be terrific, guys. Yeah. Ah, thank you. Well, thank, thank you, you guys that. so much. <laughs> I hope that you'll both come back on the show again in the future. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Ah, my you so much. Any time. And maybe once once the <laughs> once the film is uh comes out on Fuse TV, you can come back then. Uh for all the listeners okay. who yeah. you know, we can encourage to sign up for Fuse TV. So, yeah. Awesome. Oh, guys, thank you, thank you, thank you, and much thank love. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. And that was Zora Iman Cruz and Alec Tabaldi talking about their new film, 12 years in the making since, since they came up with that character. Wow. Um... If you're in New York, near the Quad Cinema, see it. Otherwise, stay tuned. I'll have updates for you once I find out the exact release date on Fuse TV uh, later on this year. And hopefully we will get Zora and uh, Alec back on the show then to talk more about the Daphne Project. But that is all the time we have today, of course. Uh, I'll be back next week. We've got some interesting guests next week uh, talking about an, uh, some interesting projects. So, until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Yeah.